Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to the High Action Podcast. It's a beautiful, cloudy morning out in Los Angeles. We started an hour early this morning. Got my cup of coffee. Do you guys have coffee? John, you got your coffee nearby? Oh, yeah. How about you, Perry? I've always got my coffee nearby. It's in my special Great Mustaches mug. One day, I'll have a great mustache. How many cups of coffee do you average a day? Um, probably on the two to three range. Probably more like John. two. Yeah, two. I'm cutting back. I'm, I'm, do, I, you know, like I'll do like half of my Yeti tumbler, you know, or a small cup of coffee in the morning, maybe a small cup of coffee in the afternoon, but that's about it. Trying to cut, cut back on that. On that yeah. addiction, I mean habit, I mean habit. <laughs> I mean, I have three every single day. Every single day. Yeah. That's probably not good, but yeah. it is what it is. Eh, you're living in Long Beach. You don't have a care in the world, man. You can just drink coffee around the clock, shed your arpeggios, and at some point you'll find your sound, you know? Funny you would mention that, oh. finding my sound. Well, let me pose a question. Do we find our sound, or does the sound find us? Right? That's, that's philosophical for me, I tell you. <clears throat> yeah, that is Like a question of intention, right? Mm -hmm. um, one thing we were talking about right before we started this episode, which, by the way, before we do that, I want to give a shout-out to Heritage Guitars, of which you will hear my H575. Heritage Guitars is a really wonderful company, really continuing the tradition that Gibson started at their old Kalamazoo, Michigan factory. And um, I really like this guitar. I think everyone should go out and try Heritage. Just put on a mask or don't, whatever, whatever the guidelines are from the CDC on the day. Try out a Heritage guitar. Yeah. And uh, also check out the New West Guitar Group Patreon page, patreon.com slash Group. Got lots of fun videos, fun trivia, and uh, we hope you'll join us. So anyway, reverting back to what I was saying, does the sound find us or do we find the sound? And have you recently listened to an old recording of yourself? I did, I don't know, earlier this week, I went back to like the oldest, like quote unquote album that I had, which no one will ever hear. I think it was like 2011. Okay. And some of the th some of the things I hear in my playing today were there and then a lot just wasn't. I felt like there was less language and less continuity and lines. But the touch, I think the the touch thing was kind of already there. John, I'm curious, if you listen to an old recording of yours, what are some things that you hear that you already had in your sound maybe 10 years ago? Versus things that weren't there yet. Well, man, I mean, I'm even thinking farther back, man. I'm thinking 20 years ago uh -huh. was the first time I set foot in a studio. It was the summer of 2001, doing some like college audition stuff with a pretty great rhythm section up in Portland, Oregon, um, and at Randy Porter's studio. And I was so excited to do this. And I had my Polytone Mini Brute, and I had my Epiphone Sheridan 2. And, um, you know, I was playing semi-hollows way back in the day, way before I could afford an arch top. And, um, yeah, I remember really channeling 
Grant, Kenny, Wes, and like that era of tone. And mm -hmm. for me, it was like a target. It was like I was aiming to get as close to the center of that target as possible with with my sound from from what I was hearing from those recordings. Um, so it was kind of going for more of a brighter, kind of a jangly kind of sound. But that polytone just naturally kind of darkened the sound up a little bit and kind of got a Jim Hall vibe when I played chords. And to me, I felt like my playing was just kind of a paper collage of all of my heroes and trying to like copy elements of, of everybody. Um, and then it wasn't really until I got to USC and I was around so many great students and teachers and I was, it gave me an opportunity to just kind of be in an environment where everyone kind of had their thing a little bit and it allowed me to go farther with that and also kind of, you know, pick out the parts of those sounds that to me, you know, you know, no pun intended, resonated with me, you know, and, and mm -hmm. made me want to go a little farther. Getting an arch top in 2004 really changed my philosophy of tone, as I call it, you know, and, and how I how I heard my sound. It was some it was a way I always wanted to hear my sound with a full arch top, kind of like a pianist playing a big Steinway B or a Steinway D, you know, and, and um, so since then I've gone really far into the arch top thing. But yeah, I've, I listened back to that 2001 recording a while ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a big part of my sound then that is still with me today. It sounds like me. It sounds, sounds like a very, very early version of, of who I was then. Yeah. You know. Perry, I want to pose this question to you. Mm. Do you think that the sound starts with the, the right hand or the left hand or both? Ooh, I don't even right. know if it starts with with either of those things. I'd say it probably mm -hmm. starts with your with your ear and like kind of to what John was saying, like how your what your goal is, how you're trying to establish that sound. Uh, it could be that you're trying to emulate your heroes. It could be that you have a an idea or a vision of your sound um, that you're trying to just create. That's sort of from your own inspiration. But it is definitely an organic process and one that cannot be rushed or forced. And mm -hmm. I remember when I was much younger being a little bit obsessed with this idea of, well, how do, you, how do you find your sound? How do you find your style? Like, how does that happen? And I'd meet older guitar players, and that was always like an initial question that I wanted to ask them. And uh, what I've come to learn and realize is that your sound is so connected to your instrument and uh, the way you set it up and your technique and your ears and your priorities in music. If your priority is to play a lot of notes and to play fast and to play loud, your sound's going to be really different, you know, mm -hmm. than in if your priority is to just create like a really beautiful melodic singing tone all the time, mm -hmm. right? So... All these elements are interconnected, and I guess um, when it comes back to your question about like what creates more importance, the right hand or the left hand with sound, I don't know if it starts mm. from either of those, but what maybe is more crucial? Ooh, that's tough. Right or left hand? Probably the right hand. Um, I would agree. If I had to choose, probably the right hand, just because of the issue of the, the touch and the impact that you're putting on the string with your right hand. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously the left hand is crucial, but the touch on your instrument, the amount of like force you're putting on the string really changes the tone. So, yeah. 
I agree. I totally agree. I think each one of us, I'm sure you guys will agree, you spend a lot of time just holding your box and playing it acoustically and finding a feeling, right? The like even if you take the sound away for a second, the feeling it gets when you're digging in the right way. Yeah. Or or not digging in too much. And then trying to get that feeling back in a live context, which is usually, you know, louder with an amplifier. But establishing that feeling and then recreating it in different settings. Well, that's the that's the thing, Will, is recreating it, right, in different mm-hmm. settings. And, I mean, I was talking to a horn player the other day. He was talking to me about, like, practicing versus playing and da-da-da-da-da. And I literally was just like, oh, for me, it just comes down to trying to trying to uh, establish my sound in every situation, which for guitar and for the hollow body, I feel like is uniquely challenging because of the volume issue. If there's one thing that changes our sound drastically mm-hmm. from the from the studio, from the practice room to the stage, it's volume. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could kick a verse on that, Will, like, you know, dealing with volume when it comes to your sound and how that alters or changes it. That's a great question. Dealing with volume when it comes to your sound. Well, my most important priority is, like I said, being able to retain the feeling of, you know, and if I turn it up, so if there's more volume coming out, I'm going to pick a little lighter, Mm. but ideally whatever I'm going through, whatever processed sound or in this case you know going into logic through zoom trying to get all those processed sounds to get out of the way so that i'm hearing me you know is there a similarity maybe maybe not i don't know but um here's a great tip put your amp on your left side behind you right that helps (laughs) Maybe tilt it up a little bit, you know? Yeah, arch it up. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky, man. Like, I think it's probably the thing I've struggled with the most in terms of recreating my sound from situation to situation is, like, the volume issue. It's one thing when you're playing with a guitar duo with a bass or whatever, playing in a quieter setting. It feels like a lot easier with the arch shop sometimes. But if I reflect Mm -hmm. on my sound over the years, I've noticed that, oh, I've thrown in, you know uh overdrive pedals to try to create more like punch through my sound i don't really changed out my bridge to try to create more punch i've heightened my action or brightened up my tone to try to cut more without degrading the sound and like all these different variables i had to kind of negotiate with establishing a sound It's, it's it's something i've learned quite a bit from um now let me ask you guys how much do you think composition Individual oh, yeah. composition plays a part in finding your sound. John, what do you think? Oh, majorly. I mean, it, it, c- composing is improvising in slow motion. So for me, it's just spending time with kind of melodic ideas, harmonic territory. I mean, I think of space. I think of kind of crafting something. And I think about the people I'm writing for. I mean, New West has been such a perfect thing for me the last two decades to really explore playing um, guitar with other guitarists and all different kinds of guitars. It's pretty Mm -hmm. rare that I get to write for, let's say, a steel string part and this part. You know, if I'm writing for, say, you know, I'm doing a new quintet project right now, so I'm writing for tenor sax and writing for piano and 
And it, that's been really fun nice. to kind of think about those elements a little more. Um, but yeah, I mean, comp- composing is, is definitely a major part of it. Sometimes the composing for me pushes my technical skills. For instance, like our tune Evergreen or way back when we did All My Belongings, you know, I'm using like a weird tuning with a weird capoing and that really changes how I play the guitar. I mean, it changes how I have to control the instrument in the right hand with what's ringing out and what's not ringing out. And so sometimes the composing allows me to break through technical things that I wouldn't otherwise be trying to break through if I was just improvising all the time and just playing. So I'm, I'm very pro composing. And, and for me, it's also been a way to kind of connect my actual voice to the guitar because I sing too and I've been singing more and more the last few years on just kind of casual gigs and on my recordings and for me trying to find like where where is where's my actual voice meeting my guitar and that way it all sounds like me you know Mm -hmm. I, I really admire players that do that I think Kurt does that a little bit I mean of course George Benson and those guys are in totally different kind of worlds like that but I'm trying to kind of channel it like the way I hear James Taylor play guitar and sing. To me, that's like, that's his sound together. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to think about that in the context of my composing. And then when I improvise, um, I'm still thinking about like, if I were to be singing what I'm playing, what would that sound like? And Man, yeah. can, I, can I add to that real quick? Uh, what you mm-hmm. said about like connecting your voice to your guitar. And uh, I recently heard a clip by someone who I feel like is probably one of the clearest examples of that. B.B. Uh, King. I just came across a mm-hmm. video of him playing and singing and playing the guitar, and it's just like, it's ridiculous how clear that yeah. connection is. It's like an extension of his voice, um, and it's just mm-hmm. great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, that's the thing about the guitar. I mean, the range of the guitar fits so well with both male and female voices. My actual voice range, my lowest note typically in my chest voice is a low E, so I have a, I'm, I'm a high tenor. I match the guitar pretty well. And um, yeah, I mean, as the years go on, I, I try to connect more and more to that. And there was a long time in college where I rejected that and didn't want to sing or didn't sing at all because I was so in the jazz mode and so like trying to be a single line bebop kind of player. And man, I, I wish that my mentors back then had encouraged me to do more singing. And, you know, then, I, then that might have developed that voice, the actual voice with the guitar voice a little bit more. Because as I, as I go farther and farther into this um, journey as a musician, I, I find that connection to be so valuable to, to explore every day, yeah. you know, actually mm-hmm. singing what I'm playing. Yeah. You know. I did want to maybe share brief part of a composition of mine just to give an example of one of my goals on sharing a sound is trying to create an atmosphere right yeah with the sound with in this case maybe a chord progression the way the harmony works so even just if you just take a chord and then so the aspect of creating a mood in your sound whether it's with harmony or just with notes.
that's a big priority for me is creating a mood with both my sound and, and my compositions. Mm-hmm. What do you yeah. think, Perry? Yeah, that was beautiful. I mean, I think we're all more musical when we sort of put the priority of sound up top. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to do that because there's, especially when you're younger, there's so many other elements you're trying to work out. But, you know, maybe some tips for helping a person establish that would be like what you just did, playing rubato, you know, so mm-hmm. so you're not necessarily feeling like you got to stick to a time or I don't know if you were playing free or not, but it sounded like maybe you were playing a little free there. So you're not necessarily sticking to a set time or set harmony. You can really put the priority of your touch and your sound up top, up front. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I think is crucial. What about reflecting, like recording things and listening back and reflecting oh, like, man. oh, I want to make this adjustment to my sound after hearing said recording. Do you do that well? Absolutely. I'd say a good thing to check in on yourself with is what are you intending to get across and what is coming across on the other side? Yeah. And yep. listening back to your recording is huge. And as we know, if we listen back to a show and we go, oh, I thought my sound was cutting through when my amp speaker was right behind me, but lo and behold, the microphone in the middle of the room wasn't picking it up the same way. So maybe that means I need to turn the treble up, you know, in that example. Right. I mean, going back to the right hand, though, too, when it comes to the guitar, like, depending on where you pick, you're going to get a totally different sound, right? Like, so if you're playing up here by the neck... that throatier kind of full body type mm-hmm. sound which can be great especially at quieter volumes at louder volumes that's that might totally fuck up your sound there might there might be zero clarity in that whereas if you're mm-hmm. back here you know then it's a little bit easier to cut through it's a little brighter um yeah so you kind of have to also figure out when it comes to your instrument the different you know, techniques that you can utilize to have a variety of sound. Uh, I think that's I think crucial we have to, too. Absolutely. I think we have to preemptively be in the audience's perspective before they even hear what we're going to hear and think about things we can do to make what they hear hit them with the full effect. I think a good example, John, I'm sure you'd agree, we're both... Um, you know, uh, love nerding out on EQ and engineering stuff. If you just take, let's say, Brian May's guitar sound and just isolate it out of a Queen song, I'm thinking of, um, okay, let's say Bohemian Rhapsody. It probably sounds really borderline harsh and abrasive, right? But you hear it in the mix, It sounds amazing. Now, granted, that's after it's being mixed and mastered. But if they're doing that live, there's all kinds of intense things you have to process the sound with in order to get it to sit in the mix the right way. What are some ways that you, if you're playing with your quartet at Sam First, do that? 
Yeah, I mean, um, when it's just me on my own, you know, you kind of, it's it's a little bit of throwing a Hail Mary because you're sitting there and you're kind of dialing it in where you're hearing yourself to the point where, okay, I'm comfortable with this. And then you listen back the next day to like the, that recording that they'll do at Sam First in that room. And you're like, oh, you know, it was a little muddy. The sound was, maybe I need to brighten my tone up a little bit. Mm -hmm. I've certainly noticed that in New West where I've played some shows where I thought my tone was really solid. And I'm, for those who are listening who haven't seen New West, I stand in the middle of the guitar trio, which is an interesting spot because my amp is kind of surrounded by everybody else's amps. And sometimes if you're off to the side of the room, my sound can be a little bit muddy. But if you're right in the middle, sometimes it can be a little too direct. And um, I've, I've definitely heard back some recordings like, oh man, I need to brighten my tone up a little bit more. Um, there's, I think that to me is the general thing is like up close, it sounds nice and warm and out far, it sounds bright. So, you know, obviously the certain guys out there, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, a band like back when Queen was playing, I mean, and these guys are, you know, there's stories of like Phil Collins that I've, I've heard when he did his tour, he toured with an entire recording rig everywhere he yeah. went and every morning would sit in there with the engineer and listen back to the reel to reel to the whole show at like Madison Square Garden and be like, yeah, we need to do this, do this. And Pat Metheny's like that, mm -hmm. you know, of course. Um, but the things I do when I'm at a sound check is I try to get comfortable first where I'm standing. And unlike some guitar players, I actually don't, want to walk out to the room and hear what I sound like in that situation. I want to get comfortable hmm. first. And then when I feel like I'm in a good place, maybe I'll walk out a little bit in front of the bandstand and listen to what I sound like out there or set my, my voice memos out and just listen to it. Um, or, you know, ask the opinion of the sound guy, be like, you know, what do you, what do you think if you trust their, their opinion on that? But mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely, it's a, it's a comfort thing and a sound thing. And, and over the years, listening back to shows, I kind of, you kind of find where's that happy medium for how you have to adjust it right next to you versus how it actually really does sound out in the house, which is all three of us know, like, man, the room has such a big part in that, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. why it's, you're, we're so lucky to get such great front of house engineers at bigger shows, you know, that can help us really get our sound in the right way, you know. So Perry, I did want to turn it to you, and I wanted to pose the question of, over the course of ten years, maybe more or less, yeah. More. If you look back at recordings of yourself, where where are the similarities and where are the differences? And I think you said you had a couple recordings that you could kind of a b to uh, give us an idea. Yeah. Um, well, you'll hear you'll hear uh, the differences. I have three little tracks I'll play some snippets of, and. I think early on, like this was maybe like 2008 when I recorded mm -hmm. my first album as a leader, a lot of what I would turn to to try to cut with a drummer and a piano player who were playing a lot was an overdrive pedal. So I would use this, uh, John, do you remember that pedal, that BB, was it BBE? It was like some yes. British green yeah. pedal that I got. Back in yeah, the day. Yeah, it's kind of like a tube screamer knockoff kind of thing. Yeah, right? exactly. And yeah. I would use that when it was just too difficult to cut. Um, mm -hmm. And that is, you know, it's a slippery slope because I don't love the way that that colors the sound, but it's almost like I'll, I would take that option versus not being heard or trying to, having to dig in too much. So you'll you'll hear. I have a couple clips here that I'll play, and uh, it should be fairly obvious how my sound has trended from that 
to just maybe more acoustic, natural tone mm -hmm. of the instrument. So here's the first little clip I was going to play from uh, one of my first albums, and, and you'll hear this, the, the tone. You know, one of the Digging things in. I always disliked with, about that was that when I would dig in and play harmony, like play chords, you could really hear it breaking up. And I feel like I was losing clarity. Um, mm -hmm. That was another original. And then here's another original from an album that's like uh, five or six years later. I had already moved to New York at this point, And this was from a quintet project. And to your point, Will, that the original writing really kind of helps you deal with the issue of what your sound is and what your artistic statement is ultimately. But mm -hmm. here's another recording where I felt like I started to get into more of the natural clarity of uh, my instrument a little bit more. kind of here there yeah i feel like the there's a better balance with um just the natural tone of the instrument i know i'm also miking my guitar which i started doing um mm. after maybe my second or third recording so definitely on this one uh, i was miking the instrument itself trying to blend those sounds but i still hear a little too much front end delay in a way that i probably don't do anymore so Again, the process of like evaluating and reflecting on your sound and your recording and like making little adjustments. And then mm -hmm. so my most recent recording, this is just a little clip from uh, uh, a ballad, Darn That Dream. And I feel like the tone is a little bit more natural, which I guess is where I'm trending towards these days. differences right of sort of where i've tried to hone my sound and that's i feel like a really natural process that just about every musician especially musicians that are trying to show their artistic 
vision, their artistic sound, mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. going to go through that. You know, you're going to, it's, it's a process. <laughs> it is a process. And uh, it's kind of a big subject to tackle, but I think we made some good points today. I think we should close with maybe just some useful, cold, hard facts for gaining some more control over your sound. Maybe we can go in a circle and kind of say something. Yeah, I'd say mine is something that's been huge for me and that sounds like a no-brainer is really familiarize yourself with the EQ spectrum of a guitar, of an electric guitar. Um, Henriksen amplifiers, shout out to Peter Henriksen, are a great way to really craft a sound because they have six frequencies you can deal with. And I'd say in most cases, I usually turn the lows down a little bit, perhaps boost the mids some, and depending on the guitar and the venue, boost the highs. So bass down, mids up a little bit, highs up a little bit. That's a, some cold, hard statistic facts for you. John, how about yourself? Yeah, um, really know, I, along those lines, really know the equipment that you're playing, really know the potential range of what, what, what your instrument is going for. I mean, I'm so amazed when students come to me and they just like, they just don't even know what they're, they're just plugging in and just starting to play. So always know what you're dealing with. Um, play every day completely unplugged on even an electric instrument and really listen to like your attack on the string and, and really concentrate a lot on just your natural sound and learning how to like pull the sound from the instrument because that can only help you when you add things like plugging it in and amps and pedals and stuff it can only add to a better sound through that through that kind of stuff. So definitely know your know your sound know know what you sound like unplugged and then know the kind of equipment that you're working with on a day-to-day -day basis and the potential sounds that that those mm -hmm. guitars amps and pedals can can achieve. Well said. How about you, Perry? Yeah, God, cold hard facts. Well, uh, when it comes to playing an arch top, I would suggest miking your instrument. I think that mm. that can add a lot of clarity to one sound. It may not always be possible in a live situation, but in a recording situation, in a home recording situation, I feel like that's a Huge. beneficial thing to do. You can always just discard it. You don't have to use it, but mic mm -hmm. the instrument to see if you can capture and blend that acoustic nature with your amp. And then, um, you know, something that we used to do in New West to kind of establish our um, vibe as a group is we would literally write out within a couple sentences what it is that we do. You know, like uh, jazz ensemble covering originals and uh, popular songs, you know, and then that kind of gives you a vision to strive for. I think if you are able to establish some language that represents your sound, it can give you a little bit more of a clear mind in terms of achieving that, you know, are you more in the Schofield type of sound? Are you more mm -hmm. in the Bucky Pizzarelli type of sound? Those are very different sounds, right? But you have mm -hmm. to kind of be aware of where you're trying to head. Well said. I think we will close it on that. Make okay. sure to come back next week and join us on the high action podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you, Perry. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Next week is all about harmelodic improvisation, which that's going to be pretty interesting. Um, John, as the as the only uh, player in the group here that attended Cal Arts, even though I spent a lot of time there, you might have something to say about that. I'll be leading this episode, but certainly the late Charlie Hayden, the great bassist, oh, yeah. uh, was 
sort of a torchbearer when it comes to harmonic improvisation. I'm sure mm-hmm. Larry Coons has a lot to say about that with you. And um, this is going to be a, a fun and a different episode where we talk a little bit about um, the different ways you can play free jazz, essentially, free improvisation. So yep, it's going to be yep. fun. I've got to get my... Uh like get, get into my Charlie Hayden mode, man. Those spirituality of improvisation classes. Yeah, big that time. That was really something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet, man. Yeah. All right, well, yeah. Will, nice job on this one. Uh, and see you all next week. See you guys. Signing off. Signing off.